Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. We are, in fact, continuing our series through Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can pull that up. Still in Matthew chapter 1. We're still pretty fresh into Matthew. Merry Christmas, by the way. Uh, I actually, Cash, I can confirm, I did see one Christmas sweater. Um, and so they'll be winning a prize package filled with candy canes and sugar plums, whatever that exactly is. I'm not really sure. Uh, but it feels weird, right? Like this is one of those passages of Scripture that you only read once a year. And it's like we have only like, you know, six really, really good Advent sermons, you know, like a few texts only. And so because of that, we got to save them. And so nobody ever busted out middle of the year, but we're doing it because we're a rebellious church and that's just kind of how we roll. So if you feel the urge to go home and make some Christmas cookies, that is completely all right. Go ahead and chase it. Uh, That's completely, completely fine. Now, uh, here's what's really interesting about this is that you guys read this text and I think for the most part, especially if you have much church context, whatsoever. You read this text and then you think to yourself like, okay, well, it should be Christmas time. And in fact, uh, when you read about Joseph and little baby Jesus, it conjures up images in your mind of Santa Claus. Uh, Now, I want to say that the exact same thing was happening to the people that Matthew was actually writing to, but they weren't thinking necessarily about Santa Claus, though it probably was a guy with a big giant beard. They were probably thinking about Isaiah. And we assume that all Bible characters have big giant beards because that's what we were taught in Sunday school. So uh, I don't know that he was wearing red or had a big white beard, though it's possible. Who knows? Um, but when the people of uh, the people of God, so the Jewish people, when they would read what Matthew was writing, this text would conjure for them in the same way that it conjures Christmas for us, in the same way it would conjure for them images of Isaiah. Because here in this text, in this text today, in this very moment, Matthew does something very, very special that has never been done before. Now, we have a lot of different birth stories. Mark talks about it a little bit. He focuses on Mary, uh, and we get like his kind of, I mean, I'm sorry, Mark skips the birth completely. Luke actually gives us the whole storyline, but focuses on the detail of like Mary and shepherds and all that. Um, Like I said, Mark doesn't really go into anything at all. He just sort of starts with Jesus being an adult. And then uh, John, you know, he's kind of like the weird one out of the four gospel writers, and he goes all like deep and philosophical and stuff. He doesn't give us any real real details. You know, the other ones, I like it, actually. It's funny. The other ones, uh, at least Luke and Matthew are like, Jesus is born, and this is how it goes down. John's like, Jesus was. He always existed from the very beginning, right? And gives us this whole long, like really, really beautiful passage of scripture. Uh, But it's kind of strange that he doesn't choose to give us any details about his actual birth. But then we see here... And Matthew, Matthew gives us this sort of odd take, and he talks a little bit more about Joseph. And in a weird way, more than just sort of like propping up his own claim about what Jesus is, he actually invokes scripture to say something about who Jesus is. If you're actually looking in your own physical Bible, or maybe even on some of your phones, you can sort of scroll down. Verse 23 is usually broken out in like a a sort of... um, 
uh, like block quote or something like that. You guys remember block quotes, right? Like that way that you added three extra pages to your uh, your essay in college when you needed to really, really fill in some space, you know? So uh, Matthew, maybe he was worried about his gospel not being long enough, so he throws out this uh, Old Testament quote right here. In verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is officially a big deal. In fact, it is a bigger deal than I can actually muster up enough excitement to truly convey to you. One of the drawbacks of being me, there's a lot of great things about being me, but there are some drawbacks. I have very little emotional range, at least visibly. Now, inside, it's all chaos and madness, right? Like, just emotional roller coaster all of the time. It is just all over the place. High highs, low lows, all of that's happening at once. Uh, on the outside, though, this is about as much excitement as I can convey about something, and I am trying to do it. I even wrote in my sermon notes, I was like, all right, we'll throw a dance party here, we'll put on some music, we'll like really, really throw down, we'll convey that this is the hugest deal ever. Um, and then uh, in the sermon prep meeting, everyone was like, that's not gonna work out for you, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to pull that back. And it's true, I chickened out at the last moment, I didn't even prep anything because I was so scared of embarrassing myself like that. So I'm just telling you, this is how big big of a deal it is that what is happening right now is Matthew is actually invoking scripture to talk about Jesus. Now, if you had a journal, especially one with like brown craft paper, and it was about Matthew, and last week we talked a lot about what it would look like to journal through this entire series. If you happen to have one of those, which I'm seeing no one pulling them out, which is really, really great, way back in the back, journal or sit in the back, people. That's what we've learned, all right? Uh, if you are really, really paying attention, then you are a back row. It's kind of reverse of school, actually. You guys were always taking notes and sitting in the front, and now you have the freedom to sit in the back. Now, uh, if you had a journal, though, or if you just were taking notes somewhere else, you would probably write down that is something that is important to Matthew is that he quotes the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel writers. He is consistently and constantly pointing back to the Old Testament to say, hey, this came from somewhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. It actually comes from the Old Testament. This is actually a fulfillment of something that was said a whole, whole lot earlier. Now, you guys know me. You know that I like the Bible. I like to sort of geek out about it. And uh, without sounding like a total nerd, I want to say this is one of my like favorite little biblical things that goes down. You see, the Old Testament is a collection of history, law, poetry, and prophecy. It's compiled by multiple writers over the course of 2,000 years. It is the oldest collected text of all of humanity. Now, uh, for those of us here in this room today, your Bible continues going after the book of Isaiah, correct? And for Matthew, uh, he would have had these collected works, right? He would have definitely had uh, the first five books of the Pentateuch. Uh, he would have had a bunch of other sort of books of the Bible that were telling the history of the Israelite people. And then he would have also had these collections of prophecy uh, leading up to around like uh, 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And at that point, uh, God, who had been talking fairly consistently to the people of God through prophets, through uh, some of their leaders like Moses and David, God at that point really kind of hits like this radio silence. And at that point, their scripture, Matthew's scripture, the scripture that he would have been working off of, just sort of stops. 
And you know how we have revelation that's kind of like this interesting like end cap on the on the entire Bible and it's this weird like prophecy of something that's going to happen in the future and we don't know what's really going to happen like imagine putting yourself in sort of like a first century Jewish mindset your Bible doesn't really have that I mean it's got some kind of obscure prophecies that are going down in like Daniel even Isaiah has some um, we see like, you know, Nehemiah and Ezra, you've got like some people coming back to the, the land of Israel, but not a lot of people. And they're talking about what's going to happen in the future. But then by and large, it just sort of stops, right? It's just sort of not there anymore. And so Matthew is reading all of this. He's reading all of this, and it's not just a history textbook for him. It is the story of his people. It is what makes them distinct in the world. He's reading all of these crazy stories that happen. He's reading about Moses parting the Red Sea and freeing his people from slavery. He's reading about Elijah speaking for God and even performing miracles. He's reading about military conquests. He's reading about his small, simple, and frail people being chose by the God of the universe. He's reading about the ways in which God has always protected and provided for them. He's reading about a wayward people that God always steps in to rescue, and then boom, it ends. It just stops. It doesn't go any further. But I have to believe that for people like Matthew, who clearly love Scripture, there had to be this sense of like, this is not the end of the story. Something is wrong here. Something is really messed up that it's not continuing because it's packed full of all these weird little hints and Easter eggs. I mean, they were doing this, you know, thousands of years before Marvel came around. Like there's just teasers all the way through the Bible. If you're reading it correctly, you're like seeing, you know, you're sort of like on a Reddit nerd or something like that where you're like, man, this is like tying back in with this and this and this. This is happening. I can't believe they knew that in phase one. Abraham was actually promised a ruling and a blessing people, a blessing, a blessed to be a blessing people of God who were going to uh, be as numerous as sand on the seashore. David was promised that his throne would be occupied forever and that his offspring would rule. The prophets are like all over the place with their crazy things that are going to happen one day in the future. There are like all your enemies will be destroyed. You'll be in right standing with God. You'll be united with him. And even this quote today, Matthew 1, 23, I'll read it again. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This was written over 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And this is a scene in Isaiah where Isaiah was confronting the king who was sitting on David's throne, sitting in, uh, as the king of Israel, or at least over a part of it. And they were dealing with this situation where one, the other part of the nation of Israel was actually trying to attack them. They were like joining in with all these other people, uh, these other enemies of Israel, and they're ganging up on uh, the nation of Israel that was left here that Isaiah was speaking to right here. We can actually take a look at this. This is in Isaiah chapter 7. We'll put it up there on the screen. Isaiah chapter 7, 10 through 14. This is sort of that verse in context in the Old Testament. Remember, this is 700 years before Jesus. It says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said then, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I don't want to give you like too, too much context here, uh, mostly because I think if I spend any more time in the Old Testament, you guys will just revolt. We've been living in it forever. Are you guys, I mean, do we even remember that we spent like a month and a half in Philippians? No, no. It was Hosea, and before that, it was Judges, and it's just been Old Testament, Old Testament, and I've been geeking out about it, and I'm very, very sorry about that. All I really want to say about this is two really interesting things. First, uh, what's happening here is the king is saying, hey, I don't want to put the Lord to the test, and God here is responding to him, hey, uh, you're going to have to need, you're going to need to see this. You're going to need to show something to the people of God. And the other thing that I want to point out really quickly is this is the first time and not the last in the book of Matthew where he actually points out something that is like a double sign, something that has some meaning for the immediate people that they're speaking to, but also has meaning for the people hundreds of years later who would be waiting on Jesus. Now, there's lots and lots and lots of different interpretations of what this would have meant in the actual time period when Isaiah was speaking it to the king of Israel. But something was occurring right there in his own life that was going to be a sign, and then later on, that sign was going to be further fulfilled in Jesus. It's kind of like a small sign and a big sign, if you want to think about it that way. And this happens all throughout the Old Testament, especially as it pertains to Jesus. It would be very similar to if you were like taking the stage to American Idol, and I was like backstage, and I was like, you're going to be a rock star. And it meant one thing being like, you got to go out there, and you're going to do it. You're going to get it, you know, like be the, be the star, whatever. It would also mean that I am saying like in the future, you're going to make it big. You're going to win this competition. Now, I don't know if that's like an old fashioned example. Is American Idol still around? I don't even know. Uh, Maybe a more sort of present example would be like if I was like backstage on The Bachelor and they were like starting it out and I was like talking to one of the contestants and I was like, you're going to be unhappy. And you see, it would be like a double prophecy because in the short term, you're probably going to be unhappy, right? Like odds are only one of them's getting the rose. But in the long term, has being on The Bachelor really worked out well for anyone's life. I mean, like, come on. It is just a recipe for, like, blatant unhappiness, right? So that would be my version of, like, a double prophecy. Now, what was happening here is Isaiah speaking for God is actually saying something that was going to happen in the immediate future and also going to be fulfilled in Jesus. So let's bring it all together. If you were a first century Israelite or someone who was familiar with the biblical story in the Old Testament, which would have been fairly common back then to even be a non-Israelite and know about this biblical story, then you would be hearing this text, not thinking about Santa Claus, not thinking about candy canes, but you are instantly, in this moment, because Matthew brings it out for you, you are instantly transported back to this dangling, semi-fulfilled prophecy of Isaiah you are instantly reminded that for around 700 years, you have been waiting for something to happen. You have been waiting for God to do something again. The God of your grandfathers and their grandfathers, the God who had done all of this amazing stuff, you have been waiting for him to act again. You are waiting for this God to make good on his promises, to actually fulfill the things that he had promised to you and make something happen. And Matthew, after starting off with that long genealogy, lets you know right here at the very beginning of Jesus' life, this is it. This is what you've been waiting for. 
This is what was prophesied to you. This is now being fulfilled in your midst. This is a huge, huge deal. What I want to do, other than just sort of sitting and enjoying the goodness of God in relation to this moment, the fact that he's weaving the story all throughout history and that Matthew had the clarity and foresight and even the, the direction of the Holy Spirit to be able to see it and write it so that we could see it and enjoy it ourselves. I want to just take like a few observations on this because I think it changes a little bit about the way that we actually think about Jesus. See, Matthew is making a hard shift in the mind of his readers to say, hey, Jesus didn't come out of thin air. He's not out of nowhere. He's not this like brand new God that you've never heard of before. He's not this like great leader that's just like, you know, a self-made man that came out of nothing. Jesus is not a brand new thing. And I think he's conveying that to his readers, but I think he's also conveying it to us. I like the idea that Matthew is sitting around in his time of living and thinking like, well, I guess scripture is done with. We've kind of finished and it kind of ended on this weird thing and God hasn't spoken to us in so long and I don't know what's going to happen. I'm feeling confused. And I'm wondering, I always wonder this, like did he know, did he know that at some point 2,000 years later we would be reading his text with the same weight, maybe even more weight than we read the book of Isaiah? Like did he know that the scripture that he was lamenting was coming to an end was actually going to be fulfilled in his own writing of this scripture. So he's writing this to say like, hey, Jesus is tying into the story. He's the continuation. He's the answer to our questions. He's the result of so much prayer and so much hope. He is the fulfillment of a promise. And he is just a continuation of God doing what God does, doing God things. Matthew is telling us here that God fulfills his promises. So we have to ask, what does that look like in our own life? What does it mean to us that God actually fulfills his promises? What does this example that we see written 2,000 years ago have anything to do with us? Matthew is telling us about this God, and he's telling us something that we need to know, that he is a God that fulfills his promises. He actually fill, fill, or fulfills what he, is going to, or what he says he is going to do. He is a God that is going to follow through on what he commits to. It actually makes me think a lot about trust and thinking about what it takes to actually sort of trust someone. And I think Matthew is trying to convey to us in every means possible that Jesus is a trustworthy person. That was the point of like Matthew writing his gospel, right? Like he's conveying to us like, hey, uh, this is a historical account. You can actually keep track of this Jesus. Here's the details of his life. You can actually trust this guy and you can trust him also because you can trust God to fulfill his promises, which he did through Jesus. He's sort of like putting all of that and wrapping it all together. And so it's made me think a lot about like what it takes to actually trust and think about like what, who you trust in your own life and how you've come to a place where you can actually trust another person. And I feel like generally how it works is evidence over time, right? Like you're kind of trying to see the same sort of evidence. You're trying to see that they're consistent, that they follow through on what they're going to say they're, or what they say they're going to do, and that you can trust them. And then it has to happen over time as well. I actually uh, like watching The Most Beautiful Game on uh, you know, TV and stuff like that. That's soccer, for those of you guys who don't know. Uh, world's most popular game. Most people call it football, but we are America, so we'll call it what we want. And we'll watch it a lot less than everyone else. And uh, 
What's amazing on uh, the world's most beautiful game is that uh, people, when they work together more and sort of build this trust, it becomes this like wonderful kind of like ballet, like uh, dance kind of symmetry that occurs uh, out there on the pitch, which means field. Uh, right now on Chelsea, uh, which is uh, the greatest team in the world and may or may not be owned by a Russian oligarch and is kind of getting some weird flack for that. It's a tough time to be a Chelsea fan is all I'm saying. They're also not winning, but I think it's psychological, you know, like they're like, ah, our, our ownership is dubious. And so we don't want to like flaunt it in front of everyone. That would be shysty, right? We'll just throw off a few games like they did this morning. So um, there are some players though. And uh, what's amazing about soccer that does doesn't really occur in any other sport, I think, in America, at least, is they have these academies, right? And from a very, very young age, you can be like a soccer phenom, like a little five-year-old, and they're like, well, do you want to go to kindergarten with all the other kids? Or do you want to go to kindergarten at Chelsea? And they will like pick up kids from all across the world, literally, move them over, soccer stars, and develop them up through the academy. And then they start playing together, and then they start playing other academies and stuff, and basically they have these like many little professional teams that start popping up when they're like teenagers. And right now, on Chelsea, there are three kit, three uh, you know players now professional players who have actually come up through the academy system, and to see them on the field is just a thing of beauty. Because, in addition to being some of the most like top flight top flight players in all of the world, these guys have now been playing together for years and years and years. They know each other. Not just even like knowing each other on the field too. I mean, they've spent countless hours on buses and in hotel rooms and hanging out and playing FIFA, you know, like pretending like or dreaming of one day when they might have their own FIFA characters and now they are here. And what's astounding to be able to see is really just like the crosses into the box, which I think is what takes sort of the most uh, most sort of like trust on a soccer field because you have one guy it's really easy to get down the field on one side of the pitch or something like that and that guy then lobs a ball over into the middle in hopes that his teammates are then going to be able to put that into the net and what's really really magical what's really really beautiful with like these guys particularly who have been playing together forever is that they know where each other are going to be they are able, if they're like on the side making the cross, they are able to sort of trust and know that if I can put the ball into the middle of the box, then hopefully they have an opportunity to be able to put it into the net. And what you have to do in these situations is you actually have to put the ball where the person is not yet. Right? Like you have to put the ball there with the hopes that that person is going to be able to make it in. Very often, even that person is like, you know, juggling this like inscrutable offsides rule that I know most Americans hate and uh, the reason why we don't watch soccer, right? So this guy is like, I can't be in front of the last defender unless the ball goes, but I can pass the ball or I can follow the ball over into offsides and make it there. And so all of this is happening within their minds and all of these crazy things are going, all these different factors and stuff like that, but they're able able at times to just sort of land it right in the middle. And the only way, the only way that that connection is made is through a serious amount of trust. True trust. They know that the other one is going to be there. So much so that everything else that's going on sort of quiets down in the world and they know that if they can get the ball there, then they can trust the other guy to actually get it in the net. Because they've seen them do it before. And that's really the heart of this entire thing. 
Matthew's letting us know that you can trust God to do it again because you've seen him do it before. Matthew is telling us something interesting about God, that God's faithful yesterdays actually prove his fulfillment tomorrow. God's faithful yesterdays actually prove his fulfillment tomorrow. He's letting you know, he's like, I just want to pull this out and I want to put it on display for you that God fulfilled this promise. So what does that tell you about this God? If he is a God who was faithful yesterday, he is a God who is going to fulfill his promises tomorrow. This is the way that you can trust him to be there by recognizing that he has always been there. This is actually something that's become really, really important in our life, something uh, that we've recognized uh, throughout, uh, especially uh, since Sarah and I have gotten married. Now, uh, this part is, it may come as a little shock to you, but um, Sarah and I, uh, we don't make a ton of money. I know, it is shocking. We live a very lavish lifestyle, uh, and so uh, we're able to do that by scrounging, you know. Um, No, uh, Sarah's a teacher and I am a pastor, which are not on Forbes' top 10 lists of like lucrative professions these days. I am trying to desperately get to that pastor level of like private jet life and stuff like that, Uh, but we haven't uh, gotten there yet, and mostly that's on you people, to be honest. I don't, I mean, I don't want to operate off of guilt, but I just want you to know. Um, no. What's strange is uh, very often in our life, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, we'll get these like random sort of surprise bills. Isn't that kind of fun, you know? Like, uh, I feel like back in the day, people used to like checking their mail. Have you ever like gone to the mailbox being like, this is going to be great. It's going to be good for me. Hey, look, there's like a little clear window into this, pa- into this piece of mail. It's going to be a good day, right? No, no, it's always awful. And you get these like terrible surprise bills. And what we've noticed is uh, when we were living off of a teacher's salary in New, York, in New Orleans, uh, paying for me to get my master's and basically living off of uh, chicken, like chicken breasts and iceberg lettuce, there was a time in my life and this like feels funny now. There was a time in my life when I was like looking at lettuces and I was like, oh, I don't know that we can afford the spinach, babe. We've got to do this head of iceberg and I think we can make it last for like seven meals, right? Uh, we were like stealing dressing from restaurants and we were like, we're just going to make this happen, right? During those times, we'd get these surprise bills and man, it would just feel like the world was falling apart, right? And we're like, man, they are, we're going to have to go to the poorhouse. They're going to ship us to the poorhouse. You always hear about the poorhouse. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know if they still have poorhouses, but that's where we were headed, right? And it felt like our life was just going to end, right? Like it just felt like we just couldn't figure out what it took to be adults and we just weren't going to make it. And then somehow, through the grace of God, through even many, much sweat and tears, we would be rescued. We would be fine. God would take care of us. That doesn't mean that, like, it was always easy or, you know, sometimes we even, like, had debt that built up and stuff like that. I mean, like, it was never, like, all that much fun. But what was crazy is, like, we always, like, got by and we were fine, right? Like, everything was okay. And even looking back on those like really, really scroungy kind of times, we look back kind of fondly, even though we were wondering like what it was going to, what next month was going to look like and how we'd even be be able to afford things. And what's crazy is now we feel like a little bit more stable and sort of making a little bit more money and, you know, like paying all of our bills and, and stuff like that. And still, 
still you get those kind of like shocking, crazy things that happen, right? Like, uh, like for instance, your 1989 Jeep Grand Wagoneer that you saved up and wanted forever might just explode while you're driving down the road, right? Uh, cars are just excellent examples of the world being completely and firmly out of your control. Uh, you get like crazy, crazy medical bills that come out of nowhere and these things pop up. And here's what I've noticed. And, uh, you know, like this is my, my sour old man piece of wisdom is that it's never going to stop. You can be a little bit better prepared for it, right? But honestly, the more and more you get prepared for it, the more and more things you own, the more expensive they are when they break, right? Like you also like uh, you can get better and better jobs and have marginally better health care or even a better job with worse health care. So the prices of your bills are just still going to be absurd and insane. And you can have savings and you can plan and you can dream and you can do all of these things. And still chaotic and terrible bills are going to show up in your mailbox. So what we've learned, I'm sorry, that was a dark note. Uh, Josh's just statement on the economy of America and what it means to live in 2022. Man, what we have learned, though, through all of this, is that we actually have very little control over our circumstances, but we have a lot of control over the way that we react to it. And what I've noticed is while, you know, proportionally, this bill that I'm getting today is just as devastating as that one that we got back when we were living off iceberg lettuce, my reaction to it is so much different now because I've seen God come through so many times. I've actually saw, sat and thought back. And, and, you know, it's funny, even trying to think back on it, you're like, I don't even know how we, like, survived some of these periods. And yet we look back and we say God was faithful through the entire thing. God was actually taking care of us. It's become a mantra in our house, actually. Something really crazy will come up, some weird sort of bill out of left field, and we'll just be like, I don't, it doesn't look like it's going to work, but God has always taken care of us in the past. We believe he's going to do it again. And it's weird how sort of comforting that actually is. I feel like when I'm not experiencing this and when I'm not actually recognizing how kind God has been in my own life, I spend too much time trying to change the circumstances I'm in and not at all trying to change my reaction to them, not even noticing that God has been faithful to those very circumstances, not even recognizing that God has always taken care of me. I think uh, one more just quick side example. I'm doing all right on time today. We'll, we'll just keep rolling through this. I think about the meat pots all the time. Uh, this is another common phrase in our house. As common as it is to say God has always taken care of us, we believe he's going to do it again, uh, is talking about the meat pots. Now, uh, if you guys don't remember, the Israelites, uh, they were in slavery. They were in Egypt. They were working as slaves for the Pharaoh of Egypt. They were saved out of Egypt by Moses. He led God's people. They walked on the Red Sea across the dry land. I mean, it was just like crazy, right? And then a few weeks later, after all of this miraculous stuff that God had done, after they were no longer slaves, as they were marching joyfully on their way to the promised land, they start running a little bit low on food. And I kid you not, this is what the Israelite people say. They say, hey, Moses, we don't like this anymore. We think we should probably go back to slavery. That was their plan, right? They're like, we don't really have enough food. So uh, we know God opened up the Red Sea. We know that he sent all these plagues. We know he's a miraculous God. He's done crazy, crazy things for us. But it might be better, actually, if we just head back to Egypt. 
uh, we could be slaves again. That was kind of like the, the plan. And the reason why I call this the meat pots theory is because what they actually said there was, at least back in Egypt, we were able to sit by the meat pots all day, which I don't know. I've never done the cultural research to figure out what a meat pot was, like if they were just like making stews all day long or something like that. But they were like, we were slaves. Yeah, they beat us and whipped us. And sometimes some of us would get killed and we were building these pyramids and we couldn't worship God and it wasn't great. And sure, God, we saw all of the stuff that you've done. And yeah, the Red Sea was neat. But now we are hungry and we would love to be sitting by those meat pots again. Do you guys remember how good we used to have it? Right, right. The meat pots. How great was that? Yeah, the whipping. Not great. But the meat pots. The meat pots were there all day long. And I think about this all the time. Because God actually looks at Moses, and this is Josh's terrible off-the-cuff kind of paraphrase of this entire situation. God actually looks at Moses, and he says to him, like, man, like, why after everything that has happened do you not trust me? Do you really think I took you, you and your entire people out into the desert to kill you? Like, do you think that after everything that I've taken you through so far that my only goal is just to have you starve out here in the middle of nowhere? No, that's not how God ended that story. That's not how God ended the story of the Old Testament. That would have been a really, really short story of the Israelite people, right? That's not how God completed that story. It's not how God completed the story that Isaiah was starting. Instead, he actually fulfills it in Jesus. And I have seen in my own personal life, and I imagine if you think really seriously about your own life, that this is not the way that God finishes his stories. God is faithful to us. And remembering the ways in which he has been faithful to us yesterday can help us imagine his faithfulness and look towards his faithfulness and dream and hope for his faithfulness in the future. Hebrews uh, chapter 13 verse 8 actually says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And if you actually look at that little verse, I'm not going to do Hebrews again, I'm sorry, but if you look at that little verse in the middle of context, it's like in the middle of this random list of things that the author of Hebrews is talking about, and then he just throws out this one random line just for you to remember, and I think it's because it is so easy to forget that if you can trust God, if you can look back on your own life and see the ways that he has taken care of you, then you actually have the ability to trust him in the future. So what do we do with all of this information? Like, what do we do with God being a faithful God, with God being a God who takes care of us? Well, let's take a look and see what Joseph did. Back to uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, say this. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did it. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, this is no small act here. Like, I want you to just take a second, use your imagination, and actually think about what it would be to be Joseph in this moment. He took his wife as the angel of the Lord commanded him, knew her not until she gave birth to a son, called his name Jesus. So this guy, Joseph, that we have no idea who he is, sees an angel in, the, in a dream. So an angel comes and visits him in a dream. 
I had a dream the other night, actually, that Sarah and I went to New Orleans, and our favorite Italian restaurant was closed down, which we didn't even have a favorite Italian restaurant in New Orleans. And uh, we somehow fell into a, a sort of like gang-type situation. I don't know if we joined the gang or what, uh, but we're sitting in the back of this car, and the shootout starts happening, and this guy in the front of the car ha- kind of has us hostage, right? And so he's shooting at people out the window, and they're shooting at him, and I'm just freaking out in the back seat, and Sarah actually jumps up and pushes pushes the guy out of the way and pushes his gun out of the way and in the process catches a stray bullet from a car across the street that was shooting at us. There was no actionable work I could do off of that dream. Can you imagine? That was a dream, right? Like Joseph had a dream. Can you imagine if I woke up the next morning and I was like, Sarah, we got to get you some Kevlar, all right? The world is dangerous out there. Sarah, we're not going to New Orleans again. We're giving up Italian food forever. I don't really know what the takeaway is. Yet, I mean, Joseph has this dream, and all of a sudden, he's like, okay, well, my fiance is pregnant, and we haven't been together yet. Not a good situation ever, right? Like, that's not good. And instead of being like, okay, uh, I'm going to chalk that up to the weird burrito that I had earlier, and that was just some indigestion that caused a really strange dream, I'm going to, you know, leave quietly and just sort of go in the night. Instead, he actually marries Mary. He follows through on what the angel did. That's a shocking and strange thing. Clearly... What was happening here is he trusted God a lot. He trusted God. He said, God, you sent this angel. I'm actually going to do what it says, and I'm actually going to follow through on this. And he trusted Mary. He said, this is a crazy and strange and unheard of situation, but I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to trust God to do what he says he's going to do. We have no evidence of what got Joseph's actual sort of reaction was to all of this. It gets skimmed over like pretty lightly. Uh, we have no sort of like narrative kind of example of the weird conversations that I'm sure that they had. All we know for sure is that Joseph was faithful. And I want you to think about that word for a minute. He was faithful, full of faith. And because of that, he actually took steps, which I think is really at the heart of what faith actually is. And maybe this is sort of like, if we, wanna, if we actually can sort of agree with Matthew here and take into the idea that God is a faithful God that does what he says he's going to do, this is really, really the heart of what faith is to then, I think a response is actually to take steps based on that, to make moves under the assumption that God is going to do what he says he is going to do. In fact, our response to this faithful God who fulfills his promises is simply to trust. Simply to trust. And the way that I like, I've been thinking about this a lot and sort of like the easiest way to kind of convey this, that there's sort of a subtle difference in sort of believing something and actually trusting that it's true, right? Like you guys might have seen this before. It's like a you know classic kind of preachery analogy, right? So you've got this chair, and I have one relationship with the chair right now. Relationship with the chair. Has anyone ever said that sentence? That's weird. Uh, I have one experience of the chair right now. We go way back. So uh, I have one experience of the chair. There it is. Uh, I believe right now that it would hold me up. But you know, like that that statement's kind of essentially meaningless at this point, right? Like, why does that even matter? Like, I I guess it's out there, you know, like, it exists, and I can trust it. It looks like a good chair. It's like a decent-looking chair. I think it probably would do what it's supposed to do. 
But I think if I were actually to say that I trust this chair, that like when I step up on it, and I'm sorry my head has to be out of the live stream right now, trust me that I'm still talking. If I were to step up on this chair right now, I am now putting my actual trust into this chair. No longer is this like, well, yeah, I kind of believe that that chair is out there and it's going to do what it's supposed to do. Now I'm saying if this chair falls, so do I, and I am old and brittle and I'll probably break something. Like this chair now I have placed my entire trust into. I'll get off the chair because some of you guys are nervous. The reason why I bring that up is because I think what we're seeing from Joseph, the fact that he has this strange dream, the fact that he knows the strange God who fulfills his promises, and what he decides to do is actually marry his wife and go and uh, protect her and take care of her, and the, the birth story kind of continues on in its strange way, and Joseph continues taking these steps. He was actually now taking this belief in God, which may have been academic, may have been in his heart and in his head before then. It may have just been something that he, you know, like, oh, yeah, I believe. He now was actually putting it into action. He's putting it into action, an action that cost him something culturally and like among his friends, probably socially, action that actually required him to sort of take steps. He couldn't just say yes or no. He actually had to marry this woman who was pregnant, though they weren't married yet. Action that put him in a place where if God was real and this messenger from an angel was real, then he was going to be a part of his unfolding plan. But if God was not real, he was going to look like one of the biggest fools of all of history, right? And I think that's the difference in just sort of a, an intellectual kind of belief or like thinking, you know, that Jesus and God are good and that they have your best at heart and everything like that versus actually putting your faith in them, actually trusting God to do what he says he is going to do. I think in response to this Christmassy story today, I think that's what God is calling us to do. And I've thought a lot about uh, how to end this uh, sermon, and I don't, I don't really have anything. Because what I'm doing, actually, and, and what I, I think I feel sort of settled as a way to end, is actually trusting the Holy Spirit. That if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, uh, that if you have experienced his saving goodness and grace, then right now, potentially, there is probably something in your heart or mind, and I'm not saying this for everyone in this room, but for some, peop- some of us in this room, there is something right now that God is calling us to where he is asking us to trust him. There is something right now that we are going through where he is asking us to actually put our faith in him and actually lean on him to get us through the same way that he always has. And man, I think that is our move for today. And there's no magic formula for it. There's no sort of like secret prayer of like making that shift. But it's one of those things. It's one of those things that you've experienced before. Something clicks in your heart. Something changes and shifts in your soul. And all of a sudden that that situation that you're experiencing is not so life-endingly terrible anymore. That thing that you've been so scared to do because you're worried about looking foolish, that conversation with a friend that you know you've been needing to have, that, that guy that you know that you've been talking to about Jesus that you're kind of like scared to sort of ask how he actually thinks or feels about him, that person that you've been called to share the gospel with, and now is the time.
put your full faith and trust in God. He's been faithful before, and he will be faithful again. Would you guys pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that you are a faithful God. God, even when we are an unfaithful people, you are faithful to us. So we thank you and we love you for that. God, we ask, we, we believe and we trust in you, God, but we want to believe and trust in you more. So help us, help our unbelief, God. Help us when we don't trust you with all that we have. God, give us courage like Joseph, God. Give us insight like Matthew to be able to see your unfolding story throughout the history of humanity, God. And give us clarity on what steps you would have us to take. God, we love you and we place our entire lives in your hands. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.